0: It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It is lunchtime on Wednesday, October the 14th in California. We're less than three weeks away from, you know what, the election that will determine the future of the world, at least according to most pundits here in America. Um, The candidates, of course, are... Barnstorming the world, uh, or at least barnstorming America. Uh, uh, Joe Biden was in Ohio a couple of days ago, uh, and both candidates plan tomorrow night a town hall to replace barnstorming town hall to replace to replace the supposed debate that was. And I use that word carefully, debate, because of course it isn't really a debate. Uh, so everyone is barnstorming, but one guy has barnstormed, if you like, before anyone else. Uh, His name is David Giffels, and he's the author of Barnstorming Ohio, uh, a book about understanding America. Uh, It's a book not only about the election, of course, and about politics, but as Ohio as the essential uh, bellwether state. Uh, David, am I vulgarizing the book? Barnstorming Ohio, is it your attempt to understand America?
1: It, yes, if you will allow that audacious subtitle and pursuit. Um, but it really was that. I I, uh, I did a project like this in uh, the lead up to the 2004 election when I was working as a newspaper columnist. And much like Barnstorming Ohio, I spent a couple of months before that presidential election traveling through my home state, which has always been an uncannily reliable bellwether, especially for presidential elections. There's an old saying, as Ohio goes, so goes the nation. And what I came to at the end of that project was a much better understanding, not just of the people I had talked to, but really I thought of Americans, um, than I did uh, anything about an election. And so this book was um, an attempt, a very deliberate attempt in a very urgent time to do to, to do that same project, but at a much larger scale. I spent a full year, I traveled over 4,000 miles, I talked to more than 100 people um, to try to take uh, not just the temperature of individuals, but to really try to understand what Ohio might be telling us now about a country that has a lot of questions to answer.
0: Not only a country that has a lot of questions to answer, but a country that might not even have a future. Uh, Yesterday, we had David French, the DC-based pundit on the show, who's written a book about the possible breakup of America. Your book does a very good job arguing that Ohio is America. Let me give you a couple of quotes. And these photos are from Ohio. There are photos that you took. You argue in your book, Geographically and culturally, the state is an all-American buffet. Of course, we can't do those buffets anymore in the COVID age An uncannily complete every place. Uh, Cleveland is at the end of the north. Cincinnati is the beginning of the south. Youngstown is the end of the east and Hicksville. Yes, Hicksville is the beginning of the Midwest. Uh David, a little confession. I just drove my daughter from California to Pennsylvania to start college. And of course, we drove through Ohio, your state. And one of the things that struck me is, as you suggest, it is an all-American buffet. But in that sense, then, it's a place that's very hard to define, just like that all-American buffet. It's made up of so many different things that as indeed we were driving through, I asked my daughter to Wikipedia Ohio because I couldn't figure out the one defining characteristic. And I guess, would it be fair to say that the one defining characteristic of Ohio is it doesn't have a defining
1: characteristic? Yeah, I think that, that's a very good way to say it. It's, it's such a, I, teach, I teach a class at the University of Akron on Ohio literature. And one of the things we try to do every semester that I teach this course is to identify what would be the quintessential either Ohio author or piece of Ohio literature. And we never come to an answer. Other other places kind of, you know, Chicago has, it's Carl Sandburg and, you know, other places have that um, spirit. But, but Ohio is so diverse that if something defines Cleveland, it doesn't really define Cincinnati and on and on. And there's actually, that's actually goes to the heart of why Ohio is such a useful uh, place to study especially when it comes to national politics. Um, One of the things I say in the the book is that Ohio is no more American than any other place, but it is completely so. And one of the ways to look at that completeness is to look at uh, at a model that uh, political observers, politicians, political scientists, and others refer to as the five Ohio's. And, well, I
0: have, uh, I've heard there are seven, at least, according to, um, according to the Washington Post. It, it, has that seven been shrunk down to five? I know you focus on the five in the book.
1: Yeah, it, it hasn't been shrunk down. I've seen that same model that you're looking at, and I think it still fits the same. It, it adds, I think, a couple of nuances. So looking to the at this
0: map, notion. which, are, which um, how, how would you redraw that map to, 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 to shrink it down to five?
1: Well, uh, I think what they're looking at, especially, is uh, the the way Columbus is distinct from its suburbs and the more rural region surrounding it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have have no argument with that map.
0: So Columbus Uh, doesn't really exist. And and is Miami Valley um, wrong as well?
1: No, that's uh, Miami Valley kind of gathers that southern part of the state that's distinct from the Appalachian part of the state. Um, And when I say southern part of the state, I'm referring to the area dominated by Cincinnati, um, which is, uh, it's, it's, it's the big city in Ohio that's different than the old big cities of the north. It's, first of all, Cincinnati was the crossing over point on the Underground Railroad, so it represents, philosophically and spiritually, the end of the south, the end of slavery, and the beginning of the north, but it's also a river town the Ohio River is, is the largest tributary of the Mississippi River. And it feels more like Mark Twain's America mm. than the rest of Ohio does. And it's more conservative. It's more like the upper edge of the Bible Belt. And, and so that Miami Valley, I think really refers to that more, that more conservative, um, more Republican corner of the state. Whereas the southern Appalachian part of the state is, first of all, much more sparsely populated, much poorer. Um, formerly relied on coal mining, which has dried up, and um, and even geographically different. It's it's more hilly and rocky, and more of Appalachia. So those are two, and it's also um, where most of the opioid epidemic that we've heard about on the na- in the national discussion um, was kind of centered is down in that southeastern part of the state
0: there's something quite sad about some of your book i mean this is not a cheerful book in many ways um and uh, i was just rereading your conclusion Uh, it's quite dark david you're not particularly optimistic about perhaps the future of Ohio or america is that fair in uh, uh, after your research after the year you spent on the road in your home state
1: yeah, I, I don't know if I would put it in those same terms, but I don't disagree with you. I, 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 I felt a sense of despair the more the more I traveled and the more I talked to people. Because what I was hearing, one of the things that I was hearing from people is their frustration and suspicion about civil discourse, that, that, they're, that people are feeling like we're losing our opportunities to have it. And the conversations I was having with people You know, an interview is an artificial conversation. Even as much as I was, wanted it to be a natural and honest dialogue, and I felt like it was, we were also aware that we couldn't have this conversation at the grocery store, just, you know, pick it up because people get get on their guard. I was intentionally allowing the guards to be down and after a year of that, and especially since the pandemic has isolated us even further, I do have this sense of deep concern that we're we're not able to find opportunities to see if we're still more alike than different. And that's not the only conclusion I come away with. I do, I think especially as a father, and there's a young man who I spent more time with than anyone else, who's around the age of my children, um, just beginning college. and. A lot of, you know, a lot of the book that's the most personal, that's about me as a parent and thinking about my own children's future is also the parts of the book that's the most political because politics are, as much as they are about the moment, they're very much about the future. And ideally, we're talking about, you know, like big plans for, you know, how, who we're going to be next. And we're not doing that in this election so much, but I think I still have this hope that, that there's a an era that we're in that's not the only era we will be in.
0: I hope so, David. And as you suggested, your book is very personal. Uh, Some of it is about your son, who's a rookie police officer. Uh, I'm sure people have said this to you before. It's hard to believe that you have a a grown son, uh, but I'm not going to ask your age. Um, Tell me the story of your son uh, and his experience in the Ohio police force.
1: Yeah, you know, my son graduated high school, like, sort of more career focused than anyone I've ever known. You know, I was a writer, so I, you know, I was into my third college degree before I started to even figure out how I was going to make a living.
0: How, so uh, he was, uh, in all seriousness, uh, David, how old were you when you had your son? Uh, 31. When he okay,
1: was and 40. how old is your son now? He's 25 now. Mm. So I'm 56, which... Um, for the context of the book, it's a, you know it's important to know I'm, I'm at a point in life where um, where I am thinking you know generationally I think more mm-hmm. than um, I think a, a younger version of myself would be thinking about some of these questions. But when, when he when he moved out for college, my wife and I came to visit him at his first apartment, mm-hmm. and I went into his bedroom and I noticed a little slip of paper taped up over his pillow, and it just said at the top it just said goals. And it was a typical list of goals for, for an 18-year-old, you know, it's like meet the girl of my dreams and, you know, get a high score on Madden and, you know, the things that he wanted. But in the, in the middle of that list, it said save a life. And we knew that his, his goal was to become a, a, a firefighter paramedic at that point. Um, and so it, at first, as he was going through college, he did start working part-time as a, as a firefighter paramedic. And almost immediately, was confronted with this this irony that he was saving sometimes multiple lives a night because most of his calls were for o- overdoses, were for mm-hmm. opioid overdoses especially. And so this idea that someday I may save a life if I go into um, you know public safety and then you know find that in some ways that that life is, um, in some people's minds, is cheaper than than he thought. Um, I think that was a first education for him. And so then over the course of his uh, his developing of his career, he did take the Akron police test and got hired by Akron police. And he spent the year that the book covers is also his rookie year as a police officer. Like the day the book opens, he, he begins his training in the academy. I should update, since the book was finished, he has just Um, transitioned into uh, a job as a full-time player. That's great news. What was his name again? Or what is his name again? Evan. Well, Evan, if
0: you're watching, congratulations. Uh, As you say, David, Ohio is the bellwether state. It seems to shrink America down into these five or seven regions. Uh, And the narrative in your book focuses on so many tragically all American stories, whether it's the opioid addiction or unemployment or poverty or inequality. Also, mass murder. You, well, the, the, There's a narrative in the book about uh, a mass shooting in Dayton. Uh, what, David, is your experience of this? What did it teach you in covering the mass shooting in Dayton about gun yeah. and murder and life and death in America and contemporary in, a, in America
1: in 2020? Um, it's interesting because the way I, I had to plan this book pretty carefully, more than I planned other books I've written, um, because I had to do it in a year. And so at the very beginning, I had planned to be at, at an indie rock music festival just outside of Dayton, on a weekend in August. And one week to the day before that festival, a young man opened fire in a downtown Dayton nightclub district, took nine lives, um, including the life of his own sister, uh, the day after the, the shooting in El Paso. So this, this mm. one of the epidemics of America, this epidemic of mass shootings had just occurred. So now this this trip that I'm making to Dayton Um, is is a completely different experience, because now I'm going to a very large public gathering of people right next door to where somebody had just opened fire into a very similar kind of gathering. So so in the initial reaction, it prompted me not only to think about that, but also to think about my son, the young police officer, and the police officers who almost immediately reacted to this young man shooting within 30 seconds they had reacted, shot him dead, stopped his rampage, but also makes you think about how police officers have to think at the moment and wonder if they're making the right decision when they don't have time to think it through. So this is my first wave of reaction, but even more something happened in in the aftermath, the immediate aftermath of that Dayton shooting that I think is, is very telling. The the governor of Ohio went there and as usually happens when one of these events happens, you know, the the, uh, the politicians come. And he was there on the site, on the street where it happened. People were still gathered, stunned, shop owners. And he's speaking and this shop owner told the local paper, he said he was standing there watching this and without even thinking um, kind of subconsciously, these two words came to his mouth and he just out loud, he just said, do something. And it was this spontaneous expression of frustration and humanity and, you know, don't just come here and talk, do something. And the crowd started chanting, just picked it up and began chanting, do something, do something. And Mike DeWine, the governor of Ohio, actually did something. And whether he was truly moved by that or whether this was his nature, he began, this was in August of 2019, and over the course of that late summer, um, to put together a plan um, that would put together multiple agencies, community groups, um, try to address the, um, the gun problem in the same way that Ohio had already been addressing the opioid problem, which is through collaboration, which is through trying to break down barriers between Governmental entities and public entities, and try to put together a a plan that would be like sort of um, more holistic than than just a proclamation or you know one single thing. And it was it it was encouraging to me to see somebody trying to do something that to use all the resources had. Well, guess what? It, It stalls in legislation and. It's, 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 it's been kind of dragged down in the slog of, of, um, of the legislative bodies, and very little has gotten done. So I can be encouraged by an attempt to make something happen, or I can be discouraged by its inability to make it through the bureaucracy of government. Um, and, you know, it's a test of my optimism, I think, which way I try to look at that.
0: Everything about Ohio, David, is a test of your optimism. Uh, one of the things that I learned in your book, which I, I certainly didn't know before reading it, or uh, was, uh, and, and I'm supposedly an expert on technology, is that the biggest employer in Ohio is Amazon, the uh, the e-commerce uh, te- tech, big a big tech company based in uh, Seattle. Uh, what does that tell us about, the Ohioan quote-unquote economy and the increasing inequality of of economic life in Ohio
1: well first of all it's not the biggest employer here but it is it, it I believe it's the fastest growing and especially... oh yeah uh,
0: uh, my, my my mistake the fastest yeah growing.
1: well and, and to your point um I had to make last minute um edit in the book because when the pandemic started you know I finished the book in March just as the pandemic was beginning, and it is in the book, but as the wave of retail, online retail, um, followed that pandemic, I had to update its status because it's it's moving up fast Mm. on the list of the state's largest employers. Um, Ohio has lost a lot of jobs in a lot of sectors um, that used to kind of define us, especially the middle class in Ohio, manufacturing, being the main one, mining being another, um, parts of the economy that have changed over the past century, and Ohio and places like Ohio, and this is an important part of the story that I don't think it's told with the nuance it deserves often enough, um, have been trying to adapt in ways that are not relying on a single global paternal force but but find its ways and 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 what our pattern is is one step forward two steps back two steps forward one step back small pieces filling in what used to be filled in by one large piece uh so amazon is a large piece and it and and what amazon has been doing in ohio that has kind of um started to, to make a noticeable change in our landscape is Amazon has identified nationwide the value of dead and dying malls, shopping malls, the suburban mm-hmm. malls that kind of defined us culturally and, and economically in the 1960s and 1970s. And then over the end of the 20th century, many of them went into decline. And that's certainly true in Ohio. And Amazon recognizes that those places, they were built near large population centers. They were usually built near uh, major transportation routes. Um, they're, they're large footprints of real estate that are very available because they're eyesores, they're, they're public embarrassments, they're public symbols of failure in communities that used to think of them kind of nostalgically as you know the place where I went for Orange Julius and hung out with my friends and the place you know, where I bought my prom dress or whatever it was. And now they're just these empty, hulking, properties. So Amazon has been buying these up and converting them into its distribution centers. So they're near large population centers. You order a copy of Barnstorming Ohio from Amazon and they've got one in the warehouse and they zip it on that highway straight to your house and they can get it there the next day. So so it makes sense when you look at it and they're hiring in communities that, you know, where malls die are often communities where where people have lost a lot of jobs. It's where where other parts of the economy have been dying. So they're offering these good paying jobs to people who need them. And so to me, that's a complex part of the question of what is Amazon doing to America? Well, in some ways it's helping America. In some ways it's bringing back a middle-class lifestyle to people who had lost it. And you could argue that it's a oppressive force, but so were the giant corporations that all started with general, you know, general tire, general motors, you know, general electric that you know the you know this very heavy-handed iron-fisted thing that was also very paternalistic and a lot of people, you know, a lot of people in my hometown of Akron still look to Firestone and Goodyear as the thing that took care of their family for three generations. So it's a complicated picture. I'm curious what you think about that.
0: Well, I think that the, the, the paternalistic element is interesting. I think your, your point about that is uh, is relevant because, of course, uh, the one thing that you haven't talked about, which is also in your book, um, is the gender issue. Uh, um, Ohio brings together the different economies and cultures of America, but um, it's also like the rest of the country and its divisions between men and women. And not only do you write about your son, the police officer in, in, in the book, but also about your daughter who came of age, uh, in the last election. And of course will be voting again this time around. Um, the, the current, uh, the, the, the current poll in Ohio is that Biden and Trump are running almost identical. Uh, Ohio, of course is famous because, um, it's elected, uh, the president, I think since, uh, 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 1964 and of the 21 elections uh 20 of the 31 elections since 1896 it's voted with the winners in 29 spots so women will probably decide the election in ohio um tell me about the women of ohio uh uh, uh, David, uh, particularly your daughter, what 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 does that tell us about the future of America uh, and about the upcoming election?
1: Sure, yeah, I I wrote um, about the the way that women were gener- were energized, especially in the wake of of the election of Donald Trump, and. And, you know, sometimes when you're a writer, when you're a journalist, sometimes low-hanging fruit isn't the worst thing in the world. So so I'm working on the, researching this chapter and, and thinking about the role that women are going to play and how, how they have really, like in 2018, how they really kind of shaped and in some ways revolutioned the midterm election. And I thought, wait a minute, I have a young female voter living in my household. Why don't I interview her? You know, so I kind of like sort of casually said, you know, her name is Leah. I said, Leah, can I interview you. Can I talk to you about your experience voting? She she turned 18 just in time to register to vote in 2016. A young woman who just happened to walk into one of the most complex moments for a young woman to be voting, probably in American history, a choice between the first mainstream female candidate for president and the most openly misogynistic candidate, at least in the modern era. And, you know, I talked to her about it and it's interesting because it's not like we never talked about politics before, but I had never really heard her reflect on that experience. And it was very eye-opening as a father and and as somebody who's thinking in larger ways about the, these questions. She said, you know, as she heard more about Donald Trump and his treatment of women, she was more energized politically, um, to the point where after he was elected, and she felt really disappointed. She also, it, at eighteen, when you, you know the world is your oyster. Her, up until that point, her her career choice uh, had been narrowed down to emergency room surgeon and and uh, Saturday Night Live staff writer. Those like those were her two choices, which you, when you're 18, you get to do that. Mm. Uh, But she said it made her want to consider law as a, as a pursuit because she wanted to fight for women's rights because she felt so offended by the symbol of Donald Trump. So, so she moves forward as an emerging feminist and as an emerging political thinker, um, and is, and, and, and kind of helped me see first, you know, sort of firsthand what this energized female electorate looks like. So when I would talk to experts and they would tell me that, as you said, that, that they believe that women, and I think it's especially educated white suburban women, maybe eight, if not the deciding factor, I saw it firsthand. I saw somebody who might not have been as engaged politically, but is charged by this moment um, and, and will be a more active participant in the process than, you know, we might expect young people to be. And I can wonder and maybe hope that her example extrapolates across a larger population. But, but I did spend time talking and researching ab- about the effect of 2018 and post-2016 that makes me feel like there is going to be a larger search of female voters Mm. well
0: david i'm gonna put you on the spot now to end um as i said the uh the polls are predicting at the moment basically a a dead heat in ohio you've barnstormed ohio you know as much about the state as anyone who's gonna win in three weeks in ohio not just in america but what yeah. sort of sense i'm not but, and i have, have to say anecdotally just driving across ohio a few weeks ago i saw so many trump signs particularly outside the cities i was in columbus and and there were a lot of biden signs but everywhere else it's ubiquitous trump so i have to say my own anecdotal sense is that Trump's going to win, but I'm probably wrong. What do I know?
1: Well, it's not that you're wrong; it's that I know the route you drove. It's I could take it, it, I could take you to like the dividing lines where you'll stop seeing right the Biden signs and you'll start seeing the Trump signs. And, okay, and so who's going to yeah, win? So,
0: I mean, I'm putting you on the spot.
1: Yeah, well, I'm not enough of a fool to predict three weeks out how this is going to go because I know how this changes. I will say though that. What two weeks ago or three weeks ago, it seemed like it, it was a foregone conclusion that Trump had Ohio wrapped up. The fact that it has narrowed to a dead heat this close to the race, and if it, and and the fact that Ohio really does reflect this national trend, tells me that if Ohio has drawn to a dead heat, that's not good news for Donald Trump. Because if Ohio and, and, and away, one of the
0: things that strikes you know, me is the chances are still that Ohio will will vote Trump, but the chances are also he'll lose the election. So in that sense, Ohio will become less like America. It won't be the bellwether state anymore. Uh, Your book, David, um, Barnstorming Ohio uh, to Understand America, is a marvellous read uh, uh, that reflects both your optimism and pessimism, your happiness and sadness with America. It's very much of an all-American book. You are an all American guy talking from your all American home in Akron, Ohio, at this weird moment in our history, both politically and, of course, in terms of COVID. In addition to your book, what else would you suggest people read?
1: Um, <laughs> your local newspaper. I really mean that. I, I, I think if, the- if they still exist, right? yeah if you but they exist online and i really mean that as a local journalist i think these are the times when the information that you're getting needs to be from a trusted source and these are the times when local journalism can be a better guide than the noise it's the noisiest time in our lives and and i i think the the, the greatest reason and the resources that care the most about you are the ones that are Closest to your home, and so, you're uh, and you and
0: years. you were formerly a columnist at the Akron Beacon Journal, which I assume is also an interesting bellwether newspaper of the state of America.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, very much. Ohio's newspapers have been doing a project to really kind of plumb the the, the small towns and the, the hometowns of many of its journalists to try to take this aggregate picture, similar to the Barnstorming Ohio project, um, and they've been producing this really fascinating insight into close locales across Ohio. You've been listening to Keynote
0: hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week and thanks so much for listening.